Only the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album, where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello, welcome to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. We're roughly halfway through and already I'm way behind on the list of topics I was planning to talk about. This clearly shows my ability to extemporise on matters of zero importance. At parties, I'm usually the guy being talked at by somebody. I think I have a kind of chat show host demeanour about me. Either that or loser. Anyway, after a lifetime of that, I'm taking out my revenge. On you, poor listener. Well, hold out your tin plate, my friend, because here comes Damien to scoop you another ladle full of soggy self-mythologising. And let's start with this week's episode of Only the Shit You Love, the web series. This week, whatever happened to Jessie's girl? Firstly, let's discuss the music, in particular, the sequenced bass line, what I call the step aerobics bass pattern. You know how in step aerobics, well, I'm assuming it's like this because I've actually no fucking idea, you're meant to get a couple of little steps upon which you rapidly, rhythmically ascend and descend, thereby turning your leg muscles into balls of fearsome iron. Down, up, up, down, up, up. Down, up, up. Down, up, up. Well, that's what the step aerobics baseline does. Have a listen. Sorry, who is this? Who is this? Oh, right. You used to be Jessie's girl. Jessie's girl. I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. So, when are you guys getting back together? When are you guys getting back together? When are you guys getting Getting back back together? So now, let's go behind the scenes and reveal the secrets of the great composer. The step aerobics bass line? I nicked it. Yep, that's right. Because, don't believe what Nick Cave or Radiohead tells you, everyone's at it. Pop composing is basically sandwich making. You go somewhere, have a sanger, go, hmm, that was a tasty sandwich. So then you nick the recipe, take an ingredient out, move the others around, add a bit of wasabi, bingo, you've got a new sandwich. That's the history of pop music right there. So, where did I nick the step aerobics bass line? Assuming you're a fanatical musicologist, you might argue it's Giorgio Moroder on Donna Summer's I Feel Love. A great song and a big inspiration seeing as they used to play it a lot at the Good Shepherd Church Hall all-ages-no-alcohol Sunday night disco. But no, wasn't the first time I heard it. Was it from the punk era? Say, the mighty Wilco Johnson in Dr Feelgood doing Roxette. Nope, further back and way less groovy. It was the theme to 60s supermarionation puppet series, Joe Nighty. Joe 
because everything I do is inspired by supermarination. Don't get me started on that theme or I'll really fucking bore you. Whatever happened to Jessie's girl? So, what's that all about then? In this episode of the web series, I tell the continuing story of the character from a Rick Springfield song who appeared earlier in the series as the celebrity has-been philanderette, our post-anti-hero Marcel Proust's unrequited love interest. In the episode, I explain what the real story about Jesse was. Just in case you're wondering about that song, by the way, I was once told by original Disco Machine bass player, the super-talented Ryan Adamson, that the hands-down most requested song during his tenure as a member of various wedding bands was always Jesse's Girl. Not sure why. Maybe people are attracted to the fact that we never find out what Jesse's Girl's actual name is. That was the thing that always struck me about that song. Well, apart from Rick Springfield's bizarre soaring a log guitar playing style in the film clip. Why don't we ever find out her name if she's so goddamn special? Is she not a person? Why does Rick deny her her humanity? Maybe it was autobiographical and his muse was a girl called Cheryl. You know I wish that I had Cheryl. It doesn't really work quite as well, does it? Rick's decision remains an enigma, but it suited me very nicely, as I'm wont to do when other people are thinking about solving practical problems like how to bring our dislocated society back together, I'm dreaming up a backstory for Jessie's girl. Her name was Jessie. Jessie wanted to marry her and have a son called Jessie. Instead of being known as Jessie, she's forever more known as Jessie's girl. She's a symbolic victim of the patriarchy, of colonial oppression, of religious intolerance. And if you think that's fucking pretentious, how about this? She's a metaphor for my latter-day musical career. Well, okay, not really. I mean, even for me, that's drawing a planet-sized bow. But I did enjoy beginning the song with phrases I've frequently heard over the past 15 or so years of my If Only You Got That Old Band Back Together solo career. My particular favourite is Thanks for Reaching Out. A phrase that I mentioned in a previous episode. When someone thanks me for reaching out, I'm always reminded of that awful trick where you make as if to shake someone's hand then pull your hand back and scratch your head. That's a pre-COVID trick if I ever saw one. Or my school friend who had a particularly pointless and cruel game where you'd stand at opposite ends of a crowded street and walk towards each other smiling and waving and see how many people momentarily embarrass themselves by thinking you're waving at them. That doesn't get less cruel with the passing of time. What sort of evil mind gets a kick out of that? Must have been related to Anna Block. Sorry, previous episode in-joke there. Anyway, speaking about the not-quite-as-successful-as-that-band phases of my career, it's time to drag you back to my formative years. Look out, Damien's getting out the nostalgia bath salts again. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Yeah. Yes, so when we left our insomnia-beating story, 
I was just getting ready to emerge from the garage in St John's Avenue, Springvale, ready to close the unremarkable chapter of rock history known as Kestrel Hawk, and ready to leave Merida College and step into the big wide world. Okay, so why do I call it Merida College? Well, I mean, naturally I'd be happy to avoid a lawsuit from the place I call Merida, You can look up Wikipedia or whatever and I'm sure you'll be able to figure it out. But really, when I talk about Merida College, I'm talking about a place that no longer exists. Nowadays, I'll bet there's a lovely school on the same grounds with excellent facilities full of fantastic teachers, heroes, every one of them, and a very nurturing ethos. But that's not the place I attended back in the 70s. I always felt cheated that I went to what is technically known as a private school. A private school should conjure up images of some venerable seat of learning amid the dew-kissed emerald. These days, I occasionally walk my dog past Burke Hall, the junior school campus of Xavier College. Fuck, you should see this place. The buildings are so ancient and beautiful you expect Evelyn fucking War to emerge wearing a boater. One of their sumptuous ovals sits atop a hill with a staggering view across the Melbourne city lights. A twilight cricket match there would be better than going to Lords. And the grass? It has fucking stripes on it. You know, those stripes you get in grass when you just know the motor mower costs more than a Ferrari? All this for a bunch of primary school kids. That's a private school. Timeless beauty, impenetrable privilege. Putting that in the same sentence as Merida College is like saying Penny Lane and Pants Around Your Feet are both songs. Anyway, now let's get on the Monash Freeway and head back in time to Merida College. 1970s. It was a new Catholic boys' school set up to service the outer suburban sprawl by some obscure order of priests who thought they could create the next Xavier or De La Salle or St Kevin's. But it was, in fact, a bunch of prefab buildings dropped like giant rusted skip bins onto dusty wasteland next to the freeway, populated not by the sons of privilege, but of ditch diggers like my dad, or fitter and turners, or maybe the odd low-level office worker. From Springvale, from Mulgrave, from Clayton. This was dead poet society without the poets. Within its dank, unheated sheds, ripe with the odour of adolescent boys, lay a teeming boot camp of bastardisation and homoerotic savagery, And that was just the staff. Every day I staggered off that overcrowded bus I so lovingly recalled in a previous episode, having skillfully avoided attracting the attention of the giant skinhead Pegararo or the evil dwarf Nuncio, hoping to avoid the fate of Phil Hornibrook, who forgot his place one day and complained that kids in the level above him were pushing in the bus queue. So a bunch of them grabbed him, pulled his hair until he spread his legs and one of them took a run-up from behind, did this kind of rugby place kick into his knackers. Never question the order of things, Phil. They teach that same lesson over at Burke Hall, but you don't notice because the grass is so fucking gorgeous. Merida College was a fly-blown tip 
that the most criminally underfunded government school wouldn't wipe its arse on. That's what kind of private school it was. Mind you, it had a few things in common with our distant relatives at the top end of town. Creepy priests, indoctrination and corporal punishment. Even at St Joey's Primary School we got the occasional whack with a feather duster handle or wooden ruler. But that place still retains for me the fuzzy rose-coloured lens of childhood. Plus it had girls. At good old, homophobic, deeply racist Merida College, priest and teacher alike wielded a leather strap like a fetish totem. Some had elaborate rituals for delivering the awful medicine. One even took a run-up. Brutality doesn't breed the man, it breeds the brutality. The teachers probably needed the strap to feel safe from the students. When the line was crossed, it was anarchy. My last memory of classmate Stephen Pocock, a sharpie from Clayton, was the day he, using razor reflex and powerful grip from his after-school job as a butcher, grabbed hold of Brother McGinty's strap as it scythed through the air towards him, knocking the two of them off balance, and they collapsed into a rolling, terrifying wrestle on the ledge in front of us, until the headmaster, there's a private school word for you, burst in shouting and dragged the two of them off. We never saw either of them again. That ledge was there for a reason, the line that shan't be crossed, unless, of course, the teacher desired it, such as the fearsome Jerry Dillon, who used it to humiliate one student every lesson. Get them up on the ledge to look at a blackboard covered in mathematical rules he knew the selected kid was unable to fathom. The weakest link. He'd ask the kid to recite the rule, and ask him, and again. The kid would stand there mute in terror, and then it would come. Jerry would chant the rule like a drill sergeant rhythmically banging the kid's head against the blackboard with every syllable. That display wasn't for the benefit of the kid, it was for us. Learn your rules, Sonny, or it could be you up on the ledge tomorrow. This was the same teacher who, when berating a student for his messy desk, said, Mr Warty, you're as dirty as the Aborigines. At Merda College, I wasn't Damien Cowell, I was Cowell. Call each other by surnames. Another 1970s private school trait. Makes you feel like a real person, that does. Years after school, I bumped into some guy who'd been at Merda in the early years and he called me Cowell and it sent a little chill up my spine. At Merda College, all of my childhood learning... For instance, that girls are human beings, or that religion was something to do with love, was being systematically hammered out of me. That's why I feel cheated when people say, you went to a private school, like I was lucky or something. Over at Springy High, they had girls. Girls with badly applied makeup, derisively snapping gum in their hitched up micro school dresses. Girls with all the majesty and wonder they evoked in me. Me, I got the giant skinhead and the evil dwarf. Violence, bullying, racism and homophobia. But none of the privilege or the stripes on the oval grass. As you've probably figured out by now, I didn't really like the place. And yet I formed some great friendships. 
Understandably, when you landed upon the occasional kindred spirit, you tended to get along famously. Siege mentality does that to you. That former band of mine grew out of Merida College. Is it any wonder? But enough of that. All things, bad or good, must end. Not sure which one of those they were, but anyway, the 70s ended. And so did my school days. And so did Kestrel Hawk. My little, narrow, springy-centric world opened up, and so did my exposure to music. Instead of buying all my records at Fosdykes on Springy Road, or maybe the exotic journey out to Inner Ear Records in Clayton, I now had a job in the city as a Clark Class 1 in the Commonwealth Department of Transport, and I stumbled into a young record buyer's Shangri-La. In a 500 metre square bordered by Flinders, Elizabeth, Swanston and Collins Streets were at least four fabulous record stores, including Allen's, where at about age 10 I bought my first ever album, which was a nods as good as a wink to a blind horse by the faces. Sweaty girls, damn hotels, is where I'm going to stay. Cause now I see what it's all about. I didn't have the old school. Then there was Brashes, where now, at the end of the 70s, I bought Thin Lizzy's latest album, Black Rose. <laughs> Missing Link Records, the cave into which I descended one day to emerge a punk butterfly. And I want to move the town to the class city rocker You need a little jump of electrical shocker Better leave town if you only want to knock us the pressure of the class city rocker And Gaslight in Port Phillip Arcade Where I bought Asia by Steely Dan Hang on the Clash and Steely Dan in the same sentence. What's going on here? A lot was going on in my ears. The boy from Springvale, hitherto stuck in his outer suburban hard rock guitar bubble, was catching up on all the rest the 70s had to offer in one giant wave. The only good thing about being so far removed from cool was the fact that I had no idea what I was meant to like. No inner-city private school friends to sneer at me. Well, not yet. That would come soon enough. But for now, I'd go... The Clash. This is good. Steely Dan. This is good. In its own strange way, liking Steely Dan helped me like The Clash. I'll bet no one has ever uttered that sentence. I got into Steely Dan through my friend Huge... He and I had been friends since grade prep, but mainly our thing was soccer. Now we had music. He was about to move into the spotlight as the ashes of Kestrel Hawk phoenixed into a new band. And I did that thing that I would come to do so many more times throughout my life, especially with music. A complete left turn. A vegetarian at a sausage sizzle. Trying something I always thought I hated, only to find out, you know what? This ain't bad. Steely Dan played sophisticated, almost sort of cocktail lounge music. 
Although they featured guest guitarists doing pretty dazzling solos, it felt like non-guitar music. That was the biggest change in my years. Everything I listened to up until that point was splattered all over with guys on guitar showing off. The guitarist was God. No wonder I wanted to be one. And now I'm really happy I didn't. Because I think the late 70s was a bad time to be a young, aspiring, showy-off guitar player. Showy-off guitar, like flares and platform shoes, got flicked by the fickle finger of fashion. The wind changed, and as my mother used to say, you don't want to be pulling that face when the wind changes. To this day, I still haven't got over it. I love guitar, always have, don't get me wrong, but when I hear a guitarist showing off in that diddly-widdly sort of way, it feels to me like someone telling you their life story at a party. Really? Do we need to know how good you are at playing scales on a guitar? Could you please stop interrupting the conversation of this song? My favourite guitarists use it as a rhythm instrument. Pete Townsend, Wilco Johnson, Nile Rogers. If you're going to depart from that, start playing single notes and go up high on your guitar neck, be warned. I'm going to get the fucking auditors in and you'd better be able to account for every single note. My idea of great single note guitar playing is when it's used as a feature bit in the song, a melody line, distinct and memorable, not too many notes, but every one of them in perfect place, something you could actually whistle when you're taking out the bins. I'll play you an example by James Honeyman Scott of The Pretenders. He starts with an undulating, arpeggiating section, then descends down the neck the opposite way to your turgid guitar solo, towards the climax, which is not some melodramatic wrenched high note, but a beautiful yet barely perceptible ringing harmonic chime. A couple of good bands from around the late 70s who unfortunately got caught pulling that face when the wind changed were The Cars, who painted great little thumbnails of synth-pop futurism only to have their endlessly soloing guitarists splatter all over it, and Cole Chisel. All right, I know, I know, I'm going to get a fucking union picket outside my door now. Yes, Mossy is a great guitar player, blah, blah. But this is just my opinion, he's so prominent in their songs that it obscures the more unusual part of their sound, the thing that made them not just another typical hard rock band, the bluesy piano playing of Don Walker. Another band spoiled by a note-vomiting guitar player was Ozzy Crawl. I have this theory, a bit unformed and not fully researched, but stay with me, I have this theory that there's a continuum of great Australian guitar bands who took the classic rock format and made it arch and witty, not just with clever lyrics, but with clever guitar playing. At the moment, I've got three. Daddy Cool in the early 70s, Skyhooks in the mid-70s, and Custard in the 90s. OK, I realise there's a terrible big gap in the middle there but Aussie Crawl should have at least plugged part of that gap in the 80s, except for the guitarist soloing at every opportunity. 
did Tism fit into this continuum? Apart from modesty forbidding me to comment, I'm not sure you'd call Tism a guitar band, much to the frustration of their original guitarist who was too talented to enjoy being in a non-guitar band. You can hear that on Hot Dogma, which for me unfortunately means it's more Aussie crawl than Skyhooks, possibly one of the reasons I can't listen to it these days. Yes, yes, here comes the fucking picket line again. Jeepers, I've been talking about guitar playing for 10 minutes. What am I, guitar player magazine? Kestrel Hawk was a guitar band, and as it disintegrated through lack of interest, or perhaps shame at its shit-out name, my friend Huge came into the picture, and he played keyboards. Not surprising that I started listening beyond the guitar around this point. Of course, around about this time I had my punk rock conversion, and punk rock was still guitar music, but punk rock went a long way towards killing the guitar solo. And besides, thanks to listening to Steely Dan, I was discovering other things I liked about music, things that I couldn't previously hear for the squalling of histrionic solo guitar. One of those things was harmony. Harmony, almost ahead of rhythm, is the thing I like most about music. It's why I get so fucking bored by a solo singer with an acoustic guitar. No interplay between the instruments... No tension and release between voices. No harmony. A solo singer with an acoustic guitar to me is like a bowl of oats. I'm sure it's good for me, but can't we just add some nuts and dried fruit? When two people do different things together, sometimes it can make a third thing, otherworldly in its beauty. That's harmony. And if you think I'm trying to paint some giant metaphor for life, you're right, sunshine. Steely Dan had complex, richly layered vocal harmonies, and once I noticed that this was not a part, but the sum of disparate parts, I became some slavering MasterChef contestant, rhapsodising about the influence of wasabi in this fucking chicken sandwich. Hmm, that's my second food metaphor in the last 30 seconds. You can tell I'm recording this before lunch. Liking Steely Dan didn't just help me like harmony, It also softened me up from my hardline, my music is the only music position, and opened me up to considering new flavours. Jesus, I'm at it again. It paved the way for me to let punk rock into my life. That wasn't a straight conversion though, and I have to point out that this was happening around 78, 79, a full three years after punk rock had become the new flares you know, like, out of date. I was way behind the curve. Two reasons. One, I came from Springvale. The Dandenong train takes a long time to get out there. And also, as I've realised through my life, I'm what you call a late adopter. I'll talk more about early adopters in a future episode. Suffice to say, me and them don't get off the same stop on the dandelion. So it was handy then that for cautious, eternally suspicious types like me, we had the much-derided spin-off from punk, labelled New Wave by record companies looking to get control back on the potential cash flow. New Wave was punk watered down, if you believe the punk jihadists. It featured bands who were really skilled musically and unafraid to display influences from previous classicist pop eras, 
but learning from punk's best aspects. Short, concise songs, propulsive beats, no flash or indulgent soloing. So you had people like The Police, Elvis Costello and The Attractions, Nick Lowe, XTC, The Undertones, Ian Dury and The Blockheads. These bands were a bridge for me to the world of The Pistols, Clash, Buzzcocks and so on. In the long-term wash-up, though, those so-called new wave bands are the ones that are still most special to me. One new wave band even managed to combine a punk influence with, you guessed it, harmony. Only the bits I love. They are a little-known band called The Records, who morphed out of South End pub rockers Kersal Flyers. The records featured an overindulgent guitarist, which docks them a point. But their first album, Shades in Bed, is a classic of the pigeonhole we now call power pop, people by the likes of Big Star, Badfinger and the Raspberries. None of those bands were still doing it by 1979, so the records flew the flag in the new wave era. And sadly, not too many people were interested. Here's a snippet of harmony pop from the chorus of opening track, Girl. Not really enough for you to go on, I must admit. But if you like guitar pop with angelic harmonies, check out Shades in Bed. It's delicious. And with that, I'm off to have lunch. See you next time. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash DamienCowDC. See you next time.